If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. We are going back to the gospel of Mark this morning. And I had a kind of a epiphany or just a moment when I was driving out of the driveway at our house and I looked at the dead cherry tree. And uh, I looked at that thing and remembered that one of the nicest pictures that we took last year was taken in front of a blossoming cherry tree right around Easter of last year. And can you believe we are just 10 weeks from Easter, 10 weeks away from Easter Sunday. Now, I don't know if Easter's earlier or later, but just the thought of a beautiful blossoming cherry tree 10 weeks from now was an encouragement to my heart as we approach the dead of winter right now. Uh, One of the things that I'm looking forward to the most about 10 weeks from now is that by God's grace and Lord willing, we will be on Mark 16, 1 through 8, studying the resurrection passage in the gospel of Mark on Easter Sunday which will be a culmination of sorts to come to the end of our study through Mark's gospel. We began this on January 3rd of 2021, where we've gone now 49 messages, not straight through, obviously. We've taken some detours and different books of the Bible. But if you're new here at Leonardtown Baptist Church, one of the things we like to do is go verse by verse through books of the Bible. The last three weeks, we've done a topical series, uh, which has been a bit of an anomaly to our typical pattern where we go through books of the Bible in full. We did feel as elders that the topic of gender, of male and female, and God's design was an important one that we needed to address from the pulpit. And so we spent the last three weeks on that. But we return now to the Gospel of Mark. And after uh, Easter, we will be going to the book of Amos. Some of you are studying Amos in your Bible fellowships. I'm excited to share from the pulpit from that minor prophet for a few weeks. And then we'll return to summer in the Psalms, uh, where we'll pick up at chapter 31 through chapter 40 of the Psalms this year. After this summer, we'll go back to the book of Exodus for our fifth fall in the book of Exodus. And again, by God's grace, we will complete that book as well. So two books of the Bible this year in 2023, where we're coming to the culmination of them. I'm very excited about that. But I wanted to give you that brief survey of where we're going before we dive into Mark's gospel again, just so you had an idea of the type of preaching you'll hear here. We call that expositional preaching. Um, verse by verse is one form of expositional preaching. But even the topical series, I hope you saw um, our elders expose God's word to, to show you what's in the text. That's what expositional preaching is all about, is let us say what the text says and not what we want to say. And so the prayer is, as we go into Mark chapter 14, once again, God will speak to us through his word. Would you stand with me now in honor of the reading of God's word from Mark 14? I'll be reading verses 1 through 11, and I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible. It's on page 902, if you're following along in the Bible, in the pew racks in front of you. It was two days before the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. The chief priests and the scribes were looking for a cunning way to arrest Jesus and kill him. Not during the festival, they said, so that there won't be a riot among the people. While he was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume and pure nard. She broke the jar and poured it on his head. 
but some were expressing indignation to one another. Why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they began to scold her. Jesus replied, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a noble thing for me. You always have the poor with you, and you can do what is good for them whenever you want, but you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body in advance for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. And when they heard this, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he started looking for a good opportunity to betray him. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you for standing in honor of it. Would you please be seated? Will you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we ask now that you would speak to us through your word. Lord, may we, by your Holy Spirit, be encouraged to extravagant acts of devotion for our Savior, for the poor. Lord, help us. Help us to know what you are saying. Help us to see in the text how you are guiding us. And Lord, I pray if there is someone here who does not know you, that your Holy Spirit would draw them to salvation today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just for review, since we're picking up in the middle of Mark 14, like here we are, Mark 14, 1, uh, just to kind of give you the overarching big picture of the Gospel of Mark, we said that the main theme of the book of Mark is that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Mark says so much in chapter 1 and verse 1. That is the kind of the thesis, the beginning, that he is the Christ, the Son of God. And we pointed out that in the gospel, we are looking at essentially two portraits of Jesus. So if you wanted to divide the book of Mark, you could divide it up to chapter 8 and verse 27, where in the first eight chapters, Jesus is portrayed. We see a portrait of him as the Son of God, the powerful Messiah. the the Son of God, the powerful Messiah. Its setting in the first eight chapters is in the wilderness, on the Sea of Galilee, and in the surrounding region of Galilee. And the themes that characterize the first half of Mark's gospel include Jesus' authority to forgive sins, to cast out demons, and awe and amazement at that, but also opposition to Jesus, breaking in and doing these miracles. And so the opposition kind of builds in the beginning of the gospel. And then in the second half of the gospel, the portrait of Jesus is as son of God, the suffering servant. It's a twist that may not have been expected, whereas some may have thought that Jesus, the powerful son of God, Messiah, would come to overthrow the Romans and to free the Jews from oppression. Jesus fulfills in Mark's gospel, we see the picture of him as the suffering servant, fulfilling prophecies from Isaiah and the sort, where we see Jesus on the way to Jerusalem, in the temple and in Jerusalem, where his role is not to conquer, but to suffer and die and to pay the penalty, the ransom for sins, as Mark chapter 10 puts it. 
in this second half about Jesus, the suffering servant, these last three chapters, excuse me, begin the passion narrative proper. That is to say, God's, Jesus' passion is when he died on the cross and when he rose from the dead. So you've seen the, or maybe heard of the story, the passion of the Christ, the movie that was out. That's what we're referring to when we talk about Jesus' passion. In Mark 14 through 16, these three chapters could be divided into three parts, where the first uh, 42 verses of this chapter are the events that lead up to Jesus' arrest. And then we have Jesus' arrest, trial, crucifixion, and burial at the end of chapter 14 and all the way through the end of chapter 15. And then, of course, what we're all looking forward to 10 Sundays from now, the resurrection in Mark chapter 16. So I wanted to give us that basic overview, that basic outline, so you know kind of where we are in the gospel. But I also wanted to remind you of Mark's writing style. Just remember that when we introduced the gospel of Mark, we said that Mark is very brief. He's staccato. He's to the point. Uh, early on, especially, we went from scene to scene to scene to scene of Jesus. And Mark used the connecting word immediately. There's action. There's movement to Mark's writing style. But another unique aspect of Mark's writing style that comes into play in today's message is his use of intercalation. No, I didn't know what it was either. So uh, I went and looked it up in my Bible dictionary because intercalation is one of those fancy theological terms that nobody even remembers, even if they've gone to school for it. So intercalation is a literary pattern according to which a narrative or coherent section of material is interrupted by another seemingly unrelated story or section of material. The material is thus arranged in an ABA pattern, with the A material providing a frame around the B material, and this pattern is used repeatedly in Mark's gospel. Is it safe to say that we still don't know what an intercalation is? (laughs) This is the kind of the kind of help that pastors get when they go look in Bible dictionaries for things. Now, so to put it in a, fra- in a way that I hope even the kids can understand, it's a sandwich. All right. Have we all been to Chick-fil-A? The new sign out there said uh, bun, chicken, pickle, pickle, bun. So like subtract the pickles and we basically have bun, chicken, bun. And that's where we are. We got A, B, A. The chicken in the middle is what's happening. So the idea is that Mark will begin a story, he'll interrupt that story with another story, and then he'll go back to the original story. Begin with a theme, insert a theme, come back to the original theme. So what we have in Mark 14, 1 through 11, is another Mark sandwich. (laughs) I say that because I did go back and look for the word sandwich in the 49 messages I preached, and yes, four times. I've mentioned the fact that Mark makes sandwiches when he writes. And he's doing it again. It's easy to see in the text. You can look with me and see it. As you begin in verse 1, you have the uh, Passover and the Festival of Unleavened Bread. And what you have is the opposition. The chief priests, the scribes, looking for a cunning way to kill Jesus, to arrest him and kill him. And they say, don't do this during the festival because they don't want to riot on their hands. Then all of a sudden, we're talking about alabaster and nard and the poor and Jesus' burial. And you're like, what just happened? We were talking about the, bury, or the, you know, the opposition to Jesus, looking for a way to arrest him. 
And then we're talking about a completely different thing. Well, this is Mark's abrupt yet intentional style. Because as you'll see in verse uh, 10, he returns to Judas and to the chief priests and then plotting to betray Jesus. And so you have the sandwich. You've got the, the seeking to betray him, this story, and seeking to betray him, A, B, A. And so what is happening is Mark is using this sandwich to set up a contrast between devotion to Christ, which is the meat in the middle, and the betrayal of Christ. It's a contrast between devotion and betrayal. The comparison is between the woman in this account and Judas. And it's brought into greater relief by setting it up this way. You see the contrast. You sense the contrast by seeing them set against one another. So one commentator put together a chart of the comparison between this woman who's anointing Jesus and Judas. And he says, quote, Here is a woman with no real standing set against a man who was an apostle of Jesus. You have a woman who gave what she could to Jesus— Whereas Judas took what he could get for Jesus. She blessed her Lord. He betrayed the Lord. She loved her Lord. Judas used the Lord. She did a beautiful thing. And Judas did a terrible thing. She served him as her savior. But he sold him like a slave. Of course, Mark's gospel doesn't name the price for which he agreed to betray Jesus. But in Matthew's account, we see it was 30 pieces of silver, which in our study of Exodus, we saw is the price of a slave. Finally, by way of contrast, she is notable forever for her act of devotion. And he's notorious forever for his act of betrayal. You see how stark the contrast is. The The contrast comes into play by the use of his literary style. I'll come back to this devotion and betrayal later, but let it suffice to say that the intercalation was a powerful tool Mark used. Another thing that's unique to Mark's gospel is the fact that this woman is anonymous. This woman is anonymous in Mark's gospel, anonymity in this gospel. He doesn't name the woman who does the anointing. Now, in uh, Matthew chapter 26, this account is relayed. And in John chapter 12, the same account is relayed. And the woman is identified as Mary, the sister of Martha and of Lazarus. And it's not to be confused with a different anointing that most scholars believe Luke chapter 7 was all about. So it begs the question, like, why not name Mary? Like, to me, it would go a long way in explaining why this was taking place. If, if Mary had just seen her brother raised from the dead, John chapter 11, then John chapter 12, it explains why she would come with this extravagant act of devotion, pouring out her love towards Jesus. And the question, you know, some people say, well, is it really Mary? Because in Mark's gospel, it just talks about his head and uh, anointing his head, but in John's account, it's anointing the head and wiping the feet. And, you know, R.C. Sproul put it like this, it's both, because the amount of oil that would have been poured out on Jesus would have, like, been giving Jesus a small bath in perfume, right? And Jesus himself says, she's anointing my body 
for burial. So it's not a contradiction to have just one uh, aspect of him being anointed in Mark's account. She was undoubtedly overwhelmed with gratitude for the way that Jesus had given her brother new life. And you would think that the other disciples or some of the people that were around in Simon's house would have understood, maybe not agreed, but at least understood what was going on when this took place. But in reality, the identity of the woman for Mark is less important to the story than the good work that she had done and the stark contrast that she made with Judas. In fact, for our own sake, as I'm kind of trying to seek to apply this to our hearts and lives, I was wondering and thinking about the kind of acts of devotion that we do and the things that are remembered maybe beyond our death that we want to be known for after our life. And the truth is, those things that we do that are really worth remembering ought not to have been done for recognition, right? Like, what was our motive in doing them? For example, if somebody was writing your biography and they were to go ahead and say something like, you know, there was a man who loved Jesus that when he passed away, he gave half of his estate to his local church. Or there was a woman who was desperately in love with her Lord Jesus and she sold some of her jewelry one time in her life to help a couple adopt a child. Like, if that was written about you, would you be going like, don't forget to spell my last name right? No. You wouldn't care for the people to know who did it. You would want them to know for whom it was done. As a follower of Jesus, this is what is taking place here. This woman was not seeking recognition. She was singularly devoted to her Lord in her actions. It was an extravagant act of her devotion. So Mary brings her gift. She'd seen her brother raised from the dead. I mean, how many of you would gladly give a year's wages to have a loved one back from the dead? Amazing. You would think it was understandable, but instead of joining in Mary's adoration, what does she get? She sees annoyance, indignation. They express their indignation at her. The language that's used there, that verb of being indignant with Mary, is the same kind of language that's used of Jesus when he is indignant with the disciples from keeping the little children from coming to him. It's the same language that's used of the 10 disciples that are indignant with the two who are kind of on the side there trying to sneak in with a seat next to Jesus in his kingdom. They were indignant with them. And this is the same language that's used of the indignant, the annoyance of those who are present, like a bull snorting and like pawing at the ground, ready to attack the matador. They're ready to pounce on her and they demean her, don't they? And in fact, what we learn is that by demeaning her and scolding her, they're actually demeaning Jesus, aren't they? We just sang about it. He is worthy of all blessing and honor and glory. He is worthy. And yet they were saying implicitly, Christ is not worthy of such extravagance. He is not worthy. Brothers and sisters, some people will never understand your devotion to Jesus. They won't get it. Maybe you've been sensing that the Lord is leading you to serve in missionary work or to serve in ministry of some way. 
Danny Aiken writes about this. He says, quote, the world and sadly many people in the church will never have a problem with moderate and measured devotion to Jesus. They will have little, little to no problem with you having too many possessions and a pursuit of a comfortable and convenient Christianity. But walk away from a, quote, real career, and you'll be marked out as foolish or living some sort of wasted life. Walk away from mom and dad to serve the Lord in the inner city of America among poor and hurting people. You'll be deemed as silly or impractical. Walk away from family and friends to go out to the mission field among an unreached people group, taking your small children in tow with you, and you'll be called reckless. You'll be called radical or imbalanced. Maybe you need some counseling. Church family, I pray that that would never be true of us. That when people decide to go and to serve Jesus extravagantly, we can sing truly when we sing the Reformer's hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. Like encouraging others to go and pursue Jesus radically. Jim Elliott, the missionary, once said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Some might be annoyed or indignant with you, but the real question is, what does our Lord think about it? What does Jesus think about it? And clearly Jesus is pleased with Mary's noble act of extravagance. He acknowledges that her action was actually symbolic. She had anointed Christ for burial, which made me wonder, did she know she was anointing him for burial? Maybe, maybe not. It, it made me want to rewrite the Christmas song, no, right? Like, Mary, did you know? Like, we could do, Mary, did you know that your jar of oil would make the guys indignant? Mary, did you know that your jar of oil would prep the Lord for burial? Did you know that your jar of oil would one day be renowned? And when you wipe the feet of Jesus, you'd wipe the feet of God. It's not quite the same ring. No, no. It doesn't have the same ring. Like kissing the cheek of the baby seems much more like appetizing than wiping feet. But you know what? That's what she did. She wiped our Lord's feet. Did she know? I don't know. The reality is the text doesn't require that she knew intelligibly she was anointing him for burial. Although I do believe there is a sense in which the messianic secret that I've preached about previously in Mark's gospel is starting to kind of, the veil is coming up a little bit for those with eyes of faith to see. And here's a beginning point of somebody who had seen Jesus raise her brother from the dead and now she's beginning to at least take him at his word. Like this, this Jesus is worthy. I, I see a little bit more of who he is. And so she took him at his word and she anoints him. Whatever the case, whether Mary knew it or not, Jesus knew. Jesus knew that the act was an anointing for burial. He knew that in the haste of taking down his body from the cross, there wouldn't be time to give him a proper anointing because the Sabbath was upon them. And he knew that when the women would come to anoint his body on Sunday, they wouldn't find him there. This was the only opportunity that he would have to be anointed properly for his burial. And Jesus received it that way. 
which is a good place for us to transition as we think uh, of the final point in your outline this morning, consider some application, further application for our own lives. I've called this section analysis of occasions for extravagant devotion, an analysis of occasions. You see, the occasion to anoint Jesus's body for burial was unique, wasn't it? It was a unique occasion to Mary, like there was a place in time and history in the fullness of time for Jesus to receive a proper anointing of his body for burial. And so he would not refuse her extravagant devotion because she had properly understood the occasion. Jesus, the Son of God, right there, present with them, infinitely worthy of the expense and the adoration. And so he tells those present, you always have the poor with you, and you can do what is good for them whenever you want, but you do not always have me. The occasion for doing this would slip away, and then there would never be a chance to perform this act of love again. Mary's extravagance for Jesus, we could say, was right on time. I love this quote from William Barclay as he's reflecting on Mary and her willingness to follow through on that impulse. He says, this is worth writing down, so I'm going to say the first sentence twice. Love can see that there are things for which the chance to do them only comes once. Love can see that there are things for which the chance to do them only comes once. It is one of the tragedies, he continues, of life, that often we are moved to do something extravagant and we don't do it. It may be that we are too shy and we'd feel awkward about it. It may be that the second thoughts that come to us tell us we should be more more prudent or do something a little bit more common sense. It comes in the simplest of things, the impulse to send a letter to somebody to thank them for something they've done for us, the impulse to tell someone how much we love them, how grateful we are for them, to speak a special word to them. The tragedy is that that impulse that we have is often strangled at birth. This would be so much of a lovelier world, he continues, if there were more people like this woman who acted on the impulse of her love because she knew in her heart of hearts if she didn't do it then, She'd never do it at all. How that last extravagant, impulsive kindness must have lifted Jesus's heart as he headed to the cross, end quote. A pastor friend of mine summarized this principle with the phrase, always go, always do. Always go, always do. But I'm not sure if I should go and visit so-and-so, always go. I'm not sure if I should call that person on the care list because I barely know them. Always do. But I'm not sure if they'll misunderstand my motives. Always go. Always do. Love Christ and love others impulsively when the occasion is fitting. I know I'm in a room with engineers, budget analysts, I know I'm making some of you squeamish. I get it. I'm like you. I had to wonder myself, wrestle with the sincere question, what would I have done sitting at Simon's table? How would I have reacted? 
I think we can all objectively look at this thing from this side, of course, and see the theological and the understanding. This was an occasion in history. It was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. But I did name this uh, analysis of occasions for a specific reason. So I use the word analysis because that's what I expect from budget analysts and a room full of engineers. I use the word opportunities, plural, because although I acknowledge the uniqueness of Mary's gift, like I'm saying it, the text says it, this was a once-in-history opportunity to anoint Jesus for burial, I still believe there are opportunities for us to be extravagant in our devotion as well. And so I want to look at those opportunities from two perspectives. I want to approach it from two perspectives. First, there is a perspective that Jesus says in verse 7, we always have the poor with us. Extravagance in our generosity and devotion to God by giving to those in need should be a part of our lives as Christians. We will never cease to have those opportunities as long as we live. Jesus knew from Scripture, that's what he was quoting when he was talking at the table. He said, you know, the poor will never cease to be in the land. That's what Deuteronomy 15, 11 says. Therefore, I command you, God says, that you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. Now, I figure you already knew this, but I wanted to just say it out loud. Jesus is totally not saying that money or gifts should never be given to the poor. That's not what he says right here. Quite the opposite, Jesus came for the poor. This Bible is open to Luke 4. I didn't set it there, but I noticed it this morning. Luke 4, 17 and 18. He opened the scroll. I've come (laughs) to proclaim liberty and to set free the captives and to to bring good news to the poor. And there are, of course, a multitude of ways we can be poor uh, in material things, but we are all poor spiritually. And so we thank God that he came for the poor. And we ought to love and show extravagant devotion to the poor around us. James writes that religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And then later in chapter 2, James says that we ought not to favor the rich when they come and worship with us. Like we we ought not to have favoritism among us. Paul says to um, don't be haughty, to associate with the lowly. Be among the poor among us. The book of Amos that I'll be preaching about after Easter condemns the oppression of the poor. Over and over we know The Bible is very clear. So brothers and sisters, let us not neglect opportunities that we have to care for the poor in our congregation and the poor in our community. Like warm wrapping arms around many is going to come around again. And candidly, we need to step up our game. We did a a, a good job. We did fill in all the slots at the last minute, but I would rather not have our coordinator scrambling to try and find people to fill in. We need to be extravagant in our devotion to the poor. Serve them well. You don't get to take your wealth with you when you die. So let us store up treasures in heaven. But then I want to approach 
opportunities for extravagant devotion from another perspective. Again, I'm acknowledging uniquely Jesus in his body uh, was anointed for burial. He died, buried, rose again. Is at the right hand of the God? No, we do not have the opportunity to break a jar of oil over Jesus. But Jesus did promise us, lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so I do think there are occasions for Christians to show extravagant devotion to Jesus to this day. Here's where I'm drawing the point from the text. Jesus says, yes, you always have the poor with you. You can't do this anymore. I won't be here. But in verse 8, Jesus says of this woman, quote, she did what she could. She did what she could. The only time Jesus used that phrase of another woman was when he was commending the widow, giving her two mites. She did what she could. Mary did what she could. The widow with her two mites did what she could. The widow, of course, gave something of almost no monetary value. This woman gave a very wealthy gift, and Jesus commended them both equally. Both of them are models of generosity, self-sacrificial service, and they stand in contrast respectively to the greedy and exploitative scribes and the scheming religious leaders. She had done what she could, was said of two women who, if we're honest, seem like to us gave up almost everything. Like if we're really honest about it, like the one, the widow, she gave up all she had to live on. This woman gave up an entire year's salary. Brothers and sisters, if that's doing what they could, I wonder, have we done what we can? Have we done what we could? Like, is my devotion to Christ costing me anything? Is there, any ever, is there ever any deprivation to it? Any inconvenience to it? As R. Kent Hughes puts it, the fragrance, fragrance which is so honoring to Jesus and refreshing to others didn't come from giving half a heart, half our wallet, half our talents, or half of our ambition. Let us give him our all. Oh, sure. Some people will start to criticize you. They may be like, you know, brother, you need to kind of reel that in a little bit. You're getting a little bit, you're not thinking things through. You're not being circumspect. Some might even question if what you're giving to if you're giving to a gospel work in some extravagant way, could have better been served in meeting humanitarian needs. I think this text proves that's a false dichotomy. We're setting up a false dilemma because Jesus wants our entire allegiance. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. But oh, by the way, when you seek after Jesus, you find Jesus came for the poor. And so in seeking him, you seek to serve those in poverty. So my encouragement to us is let's get radical. Let us be extravagant. May we say, like the hymn writer Isaac Watts said, that Christ's act of sacrificial and extravagant love to us, love so amazing, so divine, demands what? My soul, my life, and my all.